more than 50 nations now recognize Juan Guaido as Venezuela's legitimate interim president. But Russia, Cuba, the Islamic Republic of Iran and China have formed an anti-American authoritarian alliance to prop up Nicolas Maduro, who following in the footsteps of Hugo Chavez has turned what was once a rich and promising land into an impoverished and oppressive hellhole. To discuss what went wrong and why and what may happen next, we're joined by FDD senior fellow Emanuele Atalenge. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Emanuele, I'm going to back into the discussion. In the 20th century, the U.S. and Canada became rich and powerful as well as free, despite fighting two world wars. One can say that about no other country, about no country in Latin America, even though most of them were not involved in those or other wars. But if I were a European in the late 19th or even early 20th century, uh, trying to decide where to settle in the new world, I might have chosen Argentina or Brazil or Venezuela over the U.S. and Canada, no? Yes, and indeed many people did. And those countries did offer at the time uh, great uh, economic opportunities. And a lot of the uh, European migrants who did choose to go to Latin America um, did thrive uh, in commerce uh, mainly and uh, contributed to the development of those economies, but those economies as a whole um, failed to, to you know, blossom and develop into uh, what we have in North America. And there's, I think, reasons that are common to a number of countries in the region. Um, but when it comes to Venezuela, there is one more factor which I think is is uh, common to other countries outside of Latin America, namely it's the, it's the curse of the natural riches. Venezuela, as you know, has the largest proven oil reserves on the planet. That's an amazing point, by the way. The largest, we're not Correct. talking about just lo- we're the largest, more single than largest, more than Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. And again, you know, there there are studies that show how oftentimes countries that have these riches are less likely to develop uh, into uh, advanced, free uh, 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 Western democracies with, uh, with, uh, with flourishing economies. And that is because of how the, the economy is built around this natural wealth that uh, somehow feeds into both corruption, authoritarianism, and frankly, a lazy economy as a result of being uh, you know, dependent, if you wish, 
on on this uh, on this great uh, greatly greatly prized uh, asset. I, look, I, I know that's true, and I'm not sure you can solve this mystery. But if you look at Saudi Arabia, hardly a paradise. I've been there. Lots of things I don't like about the country, but with with significant oil reserves, not as large as Venezuela, with no other resources really to speak of or industry. Nonetheless, you don't see people begging in the streets. You don't see people going without food. You don't have a crazy inflation rate. You don't have any of the things that have happened in Venezuela, even in a place like Saudi Arabia. Correct. And, you know, you can say that uh, of, of other countries in the Gulf where you have had a, a constant chronic uh, democratic deficit. Uh, sort of you have had authoritarianism that has relied on its monopoly over the wealth of, of the state, uh, which was created by oil, and has been perhaps uh, you know, mitigating the worst consequences of authoritarianism by distributing some of that wealth um, through lavish uh, social schemes, right? Which explain for the relative lack of, the lack of, of, of extreme poverty uh, uh, in those countries. In Venezuela, you haven't had a chronic uh, deficit of democracy because Venezuela has been, like many other Latin American countries, able to come out of the the dictatorships uh, of the 20th, 20th uh, century that characterized most of Latin America's political landscape. It has had free elections. It has had uh, you know competition among political parties. Um, but it has failed to distribute wealth in uh, in a way that has lifted people from extreme poverty, and it has also squandered its uh, its uh, great riches uh, um, by feeding into corruption, which is also rife uh, in Latin America, in a way that eventually led to uh, successive uh, currency crisis, rampant inflation, um, and eventually paved the way for the election of Hugo Chavez in 1999, in and the rest is history. Before that, just so we know, we you had some promising developments. You had dictatorships as well. You had coups as well. It wasn't great. It wasn't as bad. By the way, we should also mention, in addition to oil, it's, it, even though oil is, is, a, is a huge source of wealth in this impoverished nation, uh, Venezuela has gold. Venezuela has iron oil. It has fertile soil. It has a seacoast. It has beaches. I mean, it has a remarkable set of natural resources. Um, that it, and it has smart, educated uh, people as well. But let's g- you know go through the history and say 20 years ago, 1998, and Hugo Chavez was elected, came to power in 1999. Uh, uh, and by the way, part of what he was promising was, I'm going to get rid of the corruption. And I am going to uh, do wonderful things for the economy through socialism. He said this is going to be, I think his phrase was 21st century socialism. Um, of course, exactly the opposite of what he promised to produce is what actually came about. Talk about what happened, what he did, and why it went so badly awry. That is that is absolutely correct. I think he, he took... Uh, he actually took the already pretty shocking levels of corruption that uh, Latin America has gotten its uh, citizens accustomed to, and he's, he's taken it to to an entirely new level. But he's done something else because he injected ideology into the corruption. He has masqueraded 
the corruption uh, under the guise of, uh, of you know, a, a struggle for social justice domestically and a struggle against imperialism in the region. He certainly has tapped into uh, a, a vast reservoir of resentment towards the United States and what it represents. Something. Do most people b- back in 20 years ago in Venezuela feel tremendous resentment towards the United well, States? Well, not most think? people, I assume, but certainly there is uh, there is a pool to draw upon, uh, certainly within uh, Latin American left movements uh, of, of traditional um, dislike for the United States. And frankly, you encounter it in Latin America also among people who uh, on on a on a on a whole range of of issues uh, such as you know free market uh, um, uh, you know personal freedoms uh, foreign policy orientation should be pro-American but they do resent the the big power from the north or as as many call it uh, el imperio del norte you know the the um, the empire in the north it's it's not so much uh, you know anti-Americanism per se as 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 more I guess a resentment towards uh, a much more influential and powerful relative that uh, that tells you what to do or even when you know it's right then you don't like to be told uh, yeah i mean i, I guess I'll, my prejudice would be that latin american intellectuals looked at the power and freedom and prosperity of the united states and instead of saying what are they doing right that we could do right as well they decided no this we're going to resent this and do things the opposite way even though it wasn't paying off anywhere, not in a country like Venezuela, which has resources that one would think you could distribute, not in a country like Argentina, where there are resources, uh, human and others, but there was, a, a, a under Peronismo, this idea that you could give away so much even if you didn't produce the, the wealth that, 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 that needs to underlie Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and by the way, that's, that's part of the problem with Venezuela today, as it was on a lesser scale before Chavez came to power, namely the idea that these countries could somehow finance uh, uh, lavish spending and and that's the peril, of course, of a country that has so much oil riches. Uh, and there you, uh, think you might be able to do re- it, regardless of whether you have the money to mm-hmm. do it. And so, you know, Venezuela found itself in the 1980s facing a, a, a rampant inflation problem, not as as grave as today, but certainly fed into the the the, the mismatch between the spending and the declining oil prices that happened in the 1980s. Now, what's remarkable today is that the oil prices are so much higher uh, and and went even higher during Chavez's uh, uh, presidency. And all of this, of course, enabled this wasteful spending while feeding into also this ideological struggle against the boogaboos of American imperialism, of neoliberalism. And, you know, again, there is something to it. When you go to Latin America and you see the vast socioeconomic disparities in many of these societies, you see the extreme poverty versus the riches held by uh, uh, self-perpetuating elites. I guess, you know, the the appeal of of left-wing uh, ideas uh, resonates more but surely the solution is not what uh, what chavez promoted and what chavez did actually got worse when um in in the early 2000s he was confronted by um a 48 hour strike by the oil industry where basically you know there was a desire to bring him down and that was also a sort of made worse by an attempted coup and the way Chavez responded was basically to replace the entire uh, cadre 
of, uh, of uh, senior management in the oil industry with people who had no idea about how to manage uh, the sector, but were loyal to the party. And when you bring ideologues to manage business, uh, we know how it ends. Right. And his socialist policies included other things that we should discuss a little bit. He, he did nationalize private firms, and he could do that uh, as, as a way of exercising control over that industry or that company or that sector or just to get resources for himself and his cronies. That, that, that was a possibility, too, and something I don't think he resisted. He used price controls. Sounds good. I'm going to keep the price of this commodity that everybody needs way down. But then if nobody can make money producing it, what do they do? They stop producing it, and suddenly you're importing. And that happened, too. They were importing everything. So then he has not only price controls, but he also decides to manipulate the currency. In other words, he says, here's what a bolivar is worth, and I decree that it is. And, of course, it's not true on, the, on any real market. So you have a black market. So it could cost $5 to have a meal if you change your bolivar, your dollars in the black market and $500 if you do it uh, on the, at the official rate. That enriches certain people who have that, uh, who can do that, in it, but it impoverishes everybody else. All, and then some businesses he just controlled politically because it was in his interest, all that in the interest of socialist control. All of those things, as far as I can tell, all of those things were detrimental for economic development and for the prosperity, and, in, and over time, that was a sure recipe to impoverish people and end up with hyperinflation. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the fixed exchange rate, which, of course, uh, as, as it has happened in other countries such as Iran, um, got, you know, was, was even worse because you didn't just have one fixed exchange rate, but you had different exchange mm -hmm. rates depending on of, of who you were, whether you were the, you know, the government, the industry, people who had access to the government or just the common people. And, and, and that, of course, allowed for the, the black market to thrive. The other problem was, of course, that as many governments who don't understand monetary policies uh, and find themselves uh, confronted with uh, a mismatch between their spending and, and, their, and their income, um, Bolivarian governments, both Chavez and Maduro, started printing money like there's no tomorrow got so bad that uh, they found themselves indebted to the companies that were actually printing the money for Venezuela. And of course, uh, the, the, the value of the Bolivar went so so far out of control that uh, the paper it's printed on, it's worth more than the value it has printed on it. So there you have it. So going through this history in 2013, Chavez dies somewhat suddenly, and Nicolas Maduro is his successor. And Maduro is a Chavista. He believes in Chavismo. He absolutely, he has not learned anything from, from what's gone wrong, as if, I, if I'm understanding correctly. He's going to pursue the same policies, only now he gets to make the political decisions as opposed to the terrible capitalists who he doesn't want making those decisions. Right. And, and again, sort of when you look at Chavez compared to Maduro and vice versa, it's a bit like getting the, a Nazi without the charisma to head uh, to head post-Hitler's Nazi Germany or, or a, a, a dark and, and gray Soviet bureaucrat to, to succeed Stalin. In other words, you have the same degree of ideological obtuseness and, and fanaticism, uh, but an even higher level of incompetence. And, and this is what Maduro has done. It has taken uh, 
the um, uh, an already crippled economy, and it has enhanced the dysfunctional elements that were already in place. Uh, again, favoring cronies, supporting uh, all of the social programs that uh, were bleeding the state, um, doing everything not to encourage the return of uh, of professionalism and expertise to the oil industry, but doing the opposite, uh, using the oil industry as some sort of a cash cow for for the regime. And this is really what has happened. Um, instead of having a government uh, of, a, of a sovereign nation pursuing, you know, mismanage, mismanaging the economy and pursuing bad policies, you actually have a criminal gang running a country and using the trappings of sovereignty to shield itself and its misdeeds uh, from from the consequences they deserve. So you've had 20 years of severe decline and the past six years an even more accelerated decline under Maduro, which takes us to the situation we're in now where you have Maduro claiming to be president and you have Juan Guaido saying, no, I am the president of the U.S. And again, more than 50 countries recognize Guaido, at least as interim president, but Maduro is staying in power. I just may maybe just briefly Explain how they can both claim to be president at the same time. Maduro, like other 21st century autocrats, such as Erdogan in Turkey, understands the, the visual power of an election, right? The propaganda power of, of an election. They have kept the trappings of democracy while emptying it of its contempt and of its, of its substance. And likewise, they kept elections going while you know tampering with elections, uh, jailing uh, candidates of the opposition that could be successful enough to actually unseat the Bolivarians. It's remarkable when you when you look at Venezuela and what you see is that you have a condition, the condition of starvation, hunger, uh, significant deprivation, uh, denial of access to basic commodities. So you have this situation, and that, of course, has created a mounting resentment in the country against the regime, enough to help the opposition pose a serious challenge to the Chavistas. So eventually, the opposition was able to win the most recent national elections to the, to the uh, uh, Venezuelan parliament, the National Assembly. Now, Maduro, he basically emptied the National Assembly of any authority and created a parallel elected body, which, of course, he engineered to his own advantage, that would write a new constitution and basically sideline the opposition by creating a whole parallel set of new institutions. It's a parallel right. organization. And right something now. that could then allow him to transition into a third, uh, a third term uh, in the right. presidency and stay in power for as long as he wished. Now, that is a process that was rejected by the National Assembly and by pretty much the entire opposition, and it is against the Constitution. And a number of exiled figures from, you know, erstwhile members of the Chavista regime have also joined uh, the, the, the bandwagon in condemning this act. So basically what has happened is that at the expiry of Maduro's last term, given that his new, his election into his current term was contested by the Constitution. The National Assembly said, okay, we don't have a president, and by the powers vested in the National Assembly by the Constitution, 
we need to appoint a transitional president. And that is somebody that comes out of the National Assembly itself. And that's how we got Juan Guaido. So Juan Guaido is the legitimate president based on the Venezuelan Constitution. And this is the really important point here. What we're witnessing is not a civil war between two factions. We're not witnessing a, a coup by the army or by the opposition that is trying to yank power away from the legitimately elected representatives of the people. We have an opposition who has been sidelined, intimidated, its members put in jail, forced into exile and so on, who has, despite the odds, stuck with the democratic and constitutional rules of governance and power in the country and has engineered a challenge to Maduro that stays within the constraints of the legitimate constitutional order. And that's extremely important because until now, by and large, there hasn't been a, phys a military conflict developing between these two sides. And if a transition it is to happen, it does need that kind of legitimacy. Part of what's happened here is that the military, and it's a military that's never fought a foreign war, but the Chavistas lavished helicopters and planes and armaments and all that on it. Um, the military has so far been loyal, it appears mostly to Maduro. I, it, it clearly, Juan Guaido thought the military was going to switch to his side. I think it's fair to say the U.S. government, who uh, has more than an interest in this, uh, and I think the U.S. government, this administration, th saw things developing differently than they have, thought the military was going to switch sides. Didn't work out the way uh, the way it was planned by Guaido, and I guess by the Trump administration. Not so far, at least. It certainly hasn't. Uh, although, you know, on the bright side, uh, it is remarkable that four months, five months into this process, Juan Guaido is still, f by and large, untouchable by the Maduro regime. They they won't dare jail him, and it's not like they don't know where he is. He's you know very visible and. Uh, out in the open uh, and has come in, you know, left the country and on, on official travel and come back into the country. And to some extent, that has been possible because the uh, international community that remains represented in Caracas has been there to give him uh, backing support and protection. When he came back from his um, Latin America tour, uh, he had ambassadors from a, a number of countries receiving him at the airport, and that kind of created pressure on the Maduro regime not to not to go after him. But the bottom line is this: that the Maduro regime understands that there are risks involved in in escalating, and Maduro has managed to fend off challenges by the opposition already twice in 2014 and 2017. Perhaps Maduro thinks that this can equally phase out. I think that he may not be right this time because Guaido enjoys strong support by the international community and it is hard to see how we walk back from this situation. Plus, Maduro's allies cannot indefinitely prop him up as his economy continues to tailspin into, into greater depth of, of, uh, of dysfunction and disaster. And you can't indefinitely plunder resources you do not have the means to extract, and that's what's happening to the oil industry. Two things worry me here. One is 
yes, Maduro may think, ah, the international community is not supporting me. I don't want to touch Guaido because they're supporting him. But if he is advised, no, try it. You'll get away with it. After all, what at the end of the day is the international community going to do? Um, the fear that the U.S. will intervene militarily, I would guess that the, the Russian advisors he has now, the Cuban advisors he has, even the Iranian advisors are saying the Americans are not going to do it. Trump doesn't want to utilize military force. Don't worry about it. If you want to throw Juan Guaido in jail, go ahead and do it. At that point, there. Are, what are the cards that the U.S. and its allies really can play, except letting the country continue to deteriorate? But that has its downside, too, and not that we're going to supply aid. At this point, population, total population of maybe 33 million, we're talking like 10 percent, have fled the country and have gone to the U.S., have gone to Colombia, have gone to Ecuador, have gone to Brazil, Argentina, Spain. Um, This is a huge exodus taking place. And at what point, you know, at what point do we do we does that become a problem, too? Well, so it already has become a problem and uh, and and it's uh, it's not likely to get any better and the you know the latin american countries without drawing a parallel to to syria which is of course very different civil war hundreds of thousands of uh, of uh, casualties but again you know syria triggered a huge um, refugee crisis and and the countries that surround syria just like the countries that are the recipients of immigrants or or people who escaped the uh, the hardships of Venezuela, these are not economies that can easily uh, absorb this kind of sudden influx of immigrants. And we have already seen tensions, social tensions in, in northern Brazil, for example, mm-hmm. as, a, as a result of, of this movement. So, so this raises a question because, of course, people who are talking about a possible military intervention uh, are quick to refer to the U.S. And the, uh, the Guaido administration has actually very recently uh, formally uh, approached uh, the South, South Command uh, for consultation on on how to you know to provide more support for Venezuela. My view is that you know first of all you know military intervention hopefully should be avoided at all costs uh, if there are other solutions, but that it 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 should be upon the countries of the region to actually take the leadership and for two reasons one is the you know, they're the ones who are most directly affected. And two, you know, Latin America has a history of U.S. intervention that has always been viewed uh, in a very hostile fashion and received in a hostile fashion and, frankly, has not always worked very well. And it would be desirable if this is, this is a regional problem that has consequences, first and foremost, for the region, that it is the regional powers who have taken such a strong stance through the Lima Group uh, against the Maduro regime that, that should, uh, should commit more, more resources to finding a solution. Though the Organization of American States, has that, been at, has that organization been at all useful in this situation? Well, again, it has uh, certainly because it has provided a, 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 a forum to delegitimize Maduro and, and his, uh, his ideology and his supporters. Um, but again, just like many other you know, international organizations, this is more... Uh, a place where where statements and resolutions and and sort of ideas can be floated and voiced and and gain legitimacy and public support, but less a place where coalitions can can be built. Now, one thing that I would say 
is is this as uh, as you know since the since Guaido proclaimed himself president with the backing of the opposition and, and the international community a little more than 1000 military personnel of Venezuela has defected uh, has switched allegiances from Maduro to Guaido and has trickled out of the country into Colombia now they have been there pretty much sitting idly by for months mm. these are people who have uh, a variety of military expertise and training familiarity with the terrain connections within the army with other you know low and higher ranking members of the military who may be uh, you know subjects to uh, subject to persuasion to, to change and switch and who, who are itching for a fight they want to sort of be actively involved in rescuing their country and symbolically could offer Venezuela and the military of Venezuela that has been complicit, frankly, with, with Maduro's uh, regime and its crimes for years, an opportunity, at least at the symbolic level, to redeem themselves, right? In, in other words, you know, again, without making too much of an analogy, but if you think about the resistance movement in, in, in World War II Europe, they were never, you know, decisive in in, in, in turning the tides of history uh, in favor of the Allied struggle against the Nazis. But they had a redeeming factor for the societies that too lo for too long had been morally compromised by collaborating with the Nazis, by not putting up resistance to the Nazi invasion and so on and so forth. So here you have an opportunity to create a force that is Venezuelan, that is the army that has sworn allegiance to Guaido and that could initiate a military effort to liberate at least bordering areas um, and, and create uh, a new narrative for the army that could perhaps uh, bring more people to the side of justice. We probably should mention that Guaido is not some far right winger. He's r rather to the left himself, although Correct. we believe he's more honest and wants to do things to improve the, the country and is not an ideologue. Quite, but he's he. I mean, he's left of center, no question of that. He probably calls himself a socialist. I'm not sure exactly what that means in his case, but that's probably worth 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 pointing out. It is, and it's worth also pointing out another fact that is, uh, which is very visible uh, in social media, that uh, not everybody um, within the Venezuelan opposition is is fond of him or of the strategy. But I think that uh, what the Venezuelan opposition needs now. Um, is a standard bearer, and Guaido is doing his job uh, at that, um, with the clear understanding that this is this is not, you know, a, a permanent substitute to Maduro and Chavismo. This is uh, an attempt to transition back to a democratic, right. a fully democratic. There would be elections. Correct. There would be elections, and there would be f really free right. and fair elections that can restore democracy and freedom to a country that for too, far too long has had, hasn't had either uh, uh, for its ordinary citizens. Now, here's something that I want to touch on because it really does worry me. You have, as we say, over 50 countries recognizing Guaido and not recognizing Maduro. But you have this sort of access of oppressors on the other side. You have the Russians who sent in troops, not a lot of them, but you don't need to send a lot of them in in order to buck up. Uh, evidently, Maduro, um, maybe a hundred, but they're 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 rapid deployment troops and they know what they're doing. You've got the Cubans, who are 
all interlaced throughout the intelligence uh, apparatus and have kind of been controlling Venezuela to a great extent for a long time. You've got the Iranians and Hezbollah, its proxy, which I know you've researched a lot, which is intricately involved in that country in all sorts of illicit and nefarious ways. And you've got the Chinese who have been spending money there, investing there, and have a and hold certain cards as well. So you've got this axis of oppressors, and they're saying, I don't care what America and all its many allies think or want. We, we know how to act, and we know how to get our way. And if they do successfully in this case, it will be an object lesson for elsewhere in the world. It'll be an object lesson for people in Iran to see those who rose up in the streets of Venezuela to protest this terrible regime and the poverty and the oppression, and they get nothing despite America's support. They'll see that and they'll be discouraged. And the Iranians, the Iranians who, who rule the theocrats, they want that. Um, this will be a big victory for authoritarianism if, if Maduro stays in power. Absolutely, and it has you know tremendous ramification for the region. Once again, you know America is not perfect, uh, and and people do resent the notion that the Western Hemisphere uh, is 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 ours to keep. But people who resent that notion should think about the alternative, right? You know, if you if you don't have America as the benign, some some somewhat imperfect but certainly benign power, major influence. Um, the alternatives are the countries you mentioned, the Chinese, the Russians, first and foremost, and, and then other lesser powers who have no respect for human rights, no respect for the environment, no interest in promoting prosperity, none of the above. Uh, no sympathy for the, and for no the sympathy absolute for the poverty because it's not, it's not, so not that people are not prosperous. We're talking about people, as you say, not having enough food to eat, not having the most basic necessities, not being able to get medicine, not being able to get oxygen in the hospitals because it's being used only for political for, for political ends. I mean, this is I mean uh, this the deprivation. Is, yeah, absolutely, is this severe. is the reality, and you know, I mean, it goes to the, the, the so the the the. The, the more sort of uh, the, the, the better known uh, and, and almost bizarre uh, examples of, you know, the, the chronic lack of toilet paper and, and such, uh, uh, which, you know, um, there is uh, there, there are actually books written about uh, about uh, these specific phenomena. And uh, and uh, and clearly these countries are not going to. Um, invest in Venezuela in order to provide uh, a more just uh, system of wealth distribution uh, and improve the lives of ordinary people. They're in to plunder uh, the state resources and also uh, because of their ideological disposition and, and, uh, and antagonistic uh, view of vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. They're there to diminish American influence. So that's the first, uh, that's the first point, that um, America has an interest in preventing these countries from coming in and, and, and taking hold and winning in Venezuela, because if they do win in Venezuela, that creates a, a precedent for other countries. And the Russians and the Chinese are trying to, to get their foot in the door in just about every other country in the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, this would be a great success and a trampoline to, to get to to success in, in other places. Um, the second thing is that um, the countries of Latin America 
should make the same kind of, of reasoning that America does. And they should say, you know what, whatever my past or present issues with, with the United States, the United States is an infinitely better partner uh, for us uh, than having to deal with these countries. Except that in some cases, and this is the problem with Venezuela, perhaps most acutely, but it is a regional problem as well, except that many of the governing elites in Latin America actually resent the United States precisely for the reasons that we find the United States such a better influence. They resent the pressure uh, against corruption, for transparency, for due process, uh, and so on. And of course, because Ills. the elites in power, or in many countries, the elites in power benefit from these ills. And of course, when the Russians and the Chinese come in, or the Iranians and others, they're not saying, you know, let's do business, but you need to be transparent, but you need to fight corruption, but you need to do this, that, the other, but you need to respect human rights. They say the opposite. And so here's, again, one of the principal reasons why we need to make sure that the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Cubans lose in Venezuela, because we want to affirm this principle that prosperity and democracy and a good society must be achieved through these principles by affirming human rights, by affirming transparency, by fighting corruption, by protecting the environment, all, by the way, good um, social justice crusades that the left wing should protect. I mean, just take the example of the plundering of gold by the Maduro regime. That operation, which is feeding into the, the, the wealth of the cronies of the Maduro regime, is destroying one of the most pristine parts of the Amazon forest, an area of the world that is you know, part of the UNESCO World Heritage, that it is supposed to be protected. And the illegal mining that is going on uh, through, by the way, the, not just the depredation of natural resources, but also the exploitation of unprotected workers, uh, you know, human trafficking to provide prostitution to the miners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is something that will have consequences for the environment for generations to come. So once again, we are standing and fighting for principles that affirm a better society, one where, you know, justice you know, wealth distribution, protection of the environment, uh, you know, fair business practices, democracy, human rights, all of these things take precedence over the greed and the self-interest of people. And the Russians, the Chinese, the Cubans, the Iranians, and so on, are promoting the exact opposite model. So everybody should be supporting Guaido and what the United States is trying to do, whatever the mistakes on the way. Even though they're not, everybody is not even in the U.S. Congress. Everybody is not. So, final question: If you were, if you were trying to advise at this moment President Trump or the Special Envoy Elliot Abrams for Venezuela, or the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and I'm sure they're having some pretty intense discussions right now about how things have gone and what they're willing to do, what they're able to do in the future. Anything that they're not doing that you'd tell them to do? Anything that you'd advise them to watch out for? How would how, what what might you want to uh, convey to them? First of all, I think they should dramatically raise the price uh, uh, or the the cost of not siding uh, with Guaido to the Venezuelan ruling uh, elites. Um, clearly, there are enough people within the ruling elites who are basically 
you know, barons of a criminal gang. And so they couldn't care less about, about justice. Um, but there are other people who, you know, if deprived of the wealth they have accumulated, if, depri- if, 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 uh, if uh, put under arrest, if caught and, and brought to trial and so on, um, sanctions, sanctions designations, indictments, asset recovery, all of these things uh, would, uh, would certainly uh, uh, you know, bring more uh, pressure on the regime as a whole. Um, the second thing is that uh, you know, the United States should continue to help the opposition seizing assets from the regime, including the embassies. We have a situation here in Washington, as you know, where the embassy of Venezuela has been occupied by uh, a self-proclaimed social justice uh, uh, NGO, uh, which is, uh, you know... Code Pink. Code Pink, which is there, I guess, to defend uh, uh, a a regime that has, uh, you know, imprisoned opposition, has destroyed the environment, has has done everything that this organization should should be fighting. Um, That embassy and the resources it has access to when it serves uh, should be restored to the opposition. And that's true of of other embassies around the world. Um, There should be pressure. um, There should be not pressure, but encouragement by the United States. I know this is not perhaps the most popular subject uh, uh, within a Republican um, uh, administration, but um, the Maduro regime is responsible for gross human rights violation. And and because of the uh, uh, level of starvation experienced by members of its society, because of the mass immigration caused under hardship by the regime, I think there may be ground for prosecuting the Maduro regime uh, before the International Criminal Court. The United States is not a uh, party to the treaty, but the Europeans are. Mm-hmm. And that should be something to be considered. Because again, it is something that would increase tremendously the amount of pressure uh, on, on the Maduro regime. Last but not least, the Chinese and the Russians. I mean, the Cubans are a bit like, uh, you know, the Cubans in Venezuela are a bit like the Cubans in, in Angola in the, 19, in the 1980s. For them, it's an ideological crusade uh, in addition to being uh, an access to, to resources they can plunder. But the Chinese and the Russians have invested an enormous amount of money. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars, um, basically throwing money into a black hole. At some point, I think, they will they can be persuaded, and I don't know where is the breaking point for them, that they're better off uh, cutting their losses by negotiating a way out with the United States than um, hoping to recover everything they put into this regime, which they never will. And so I think that that's another another part of the uh, tasks ahead for the uh, uh, Trump administration. You know, I, I think... Most people paying any attention at all to the situation have grasped that the humanitarian crisis there is just horrendous. I don't know that they've understood as well as they might have, and I think you've helped, that this is also an extraordinarily consequential geopolitical crisis with ramifications not just for Venezuela, not just for Latin America, but much larger. At least I hope that's what we've gotten across to people today. So that we'll, I know you'll be following this issue over the months ahead, so we'll come back to you when you do. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for your company, and thanks to all of you for joining us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at foreignpodicy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.